Available on all podcast platforms. This is the Psychology Cast, the podcast that interviews unique individuals on why they do what they do. This podcast, I talk to Priya Ahmed about what it's like to have eating behavior during Ramadan. Now, this is an important area, not just for myself, but also for my peers. And it's important to understand more about the debate about what we can do to help more eat more healthily, but also how can we can take the practices from Ramadan and into the future or the later months throughout the year. So hopefully enjoy the podcast. And if you have any sort of questions, please always let me know. Um, and hopefully you will join us back for another session around this topic soon. And we are live. Well, we are doing this podcast, doing this live. Okay, well, some of the listeners might be interested in hearing our discussion. But today I'm talking to Priya, um, who basically I recently met on uh, social media. I'm going to be talking about just a bit about her background and also um, some brief discussion into uh, food. Um, because we know that it's Ramadan. So, um, yes, we're, we're in the closing stages and um this is going to be kind of hopefully the first sort of introduction session. We're going to be talking about um, what practice can we take in the following sessions that we might we might do after this. So um, welcome, Priya, from T is it Teesside University? Teesside University, yes. Hi, Joe. I am very well. I I was just I was just said we were just saying, isn't it earlier that I can't wait? You know, I struggle every Ramadan. I know other people find it easy, but I, I, I struggle with Ramadan. And maybe that's the purpose. Maybe that's the whole point. Um, Friends and I family struggle. always know that I tend to struggle from day one. <laughs> so I always look forward to it every year. Okay, so I'm not alone then. That's good. You know? No, no, no. <laughs> um, so basically, you know, the first, this, the, the interview is basically done in a couple of sections. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly it's going to be about your background, the first bit. And the second part yeah. will be just touch up around food and you know what we're doing at the moment. Um, it'll be very informal, and then we will upload the podcast later on by Anchor FM or one of the podcast players to the okay. listeners who want to listen. Um, but you know, I just thought it'd be interesting for me to to interview someone like yourself um, who's got similar backgrounds so or we come from like similar sort of South Asian heritage. Yeah. Um, both probably fasting at the moment, both probably did psychology, um, both are investing in psychology, both PhD yes. students and yes. living in the health psychology sort of you know, arena. Um, mm. So I've always been keen to connect with people who've um, got similar background. Also, um, I became interested in, I think, your area of food interest, because even though that's not my area, mm. I'm into more exercise and mental health stuff. Um, yeah. I did do some food research in my master's, but I thought it might be interesting mm-hmm. to talk to you. So what mm-hmm. made you, my, my first question is, what made you get into psychology? Why, why, why psychology? Um, about, is it about people that you like? or um, Going back a good couple of years now, I'm not showing my age. Um, probably starting at A-levels. I, I never did it as an A-level, and it was just a, a moment that I had where um, I was always curious. That was my idea, kind of way of thinking and um, I knew psychology was all about finding the answer to why we do this or how we do that and 
I remember having a discussion with a tutor and she said to me, you know, if you want to do psychology, uh, Teesside do take on people who uh, haven't done psychology before. So that was how I ended up doing it. It was a very random kind of decision, um, but somehow many years later it worked out fine. Um, so as I got through the undergrad degree, um, it just got more and more interesting. It was harder because obviously I'd never done it before, but I knew this was the subject that I wanted to do because I'm very much a person who would always ask questions on go and run on Google and find answers to it. Um, yeah, yeah. I was just always quite interested in human behavior in general, why humans do certain things. Um, so I'm happy that I picked this line, well, this field um, of psychology. And then from there onwards, I think that's when I stemmed into health. So most people just think psychology is just kind of clinical psychology and that's it. It's all about kind of mental health. It's such a big, big field that people don't realize. Um, and health, health psychology is another kind of aspect of psychology, which um, stems into another field. And when I saw the masters being um, kind of advertised, I knew that was the masters I wanted to do. I was very much interested in not just the bio side of medical problems, but the social aspect and the psychology aspect, of, again, of why people do certain things. And probably from my master's, um, I made the decision that I'd be more focused on BME health, because um, I think we're an interesting bunch to study <laughs> and investigate. Um, so that's where my interest came in focusing more on South Asians, um, just as somewhere to start. But in general, I am interested in cultural factors. So it could be South Asians, it could be Black Caribbean population, um, and, and all other types of um, populations that are not known as the kind of general population in the UK, let's just say. No, that was really interesting. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, um, why, do you, why, do you, why do you think it's important? I mean, I, I've got my own sort of view on it, of course, mm -hmm. people know, but what do you mm -hmm. think is important to understand and, uh, you know, read into psychology and, you know, what, you know, why should we study it, do you think? In relation to BME or just in general? Um, people from our backgrounds, why should we study it? So yeah, for me personally, I think because I'm doing South Asian research, I have a complete different view compared to someone who isn't from a South Asian background to go in to do South Asian research. And if um, all I've been doing is looking at research for the past couple of years now, um, through my master's to the start of my PhD, and a lot of the South Asian research does predominantly come from South Asians because they provide a different perspective, um, a different understanding, a different experience, which kind of alters how you would approach research compared to someone who has none of that understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember um, there's a study that I was did at Masters, a paper that I'm actually trying to work on right now. Um, interestingly, one of the rationale for interviewing South Asian doctors predominantly was because they had both the medical knowledge and the cultural knowledge. So, it, And that could be applied to researchers like ourselves. We have the research knowledge and we also have the understanding of cultural factors. So when we do go and do research on our type of people, yeah. Um, yeah. just have a more in-depth understanding and more context to any findings that we may find. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you know, I would like to add to that and say, look, I think it's, you know, we, we have to understand if you want to help people and stuff, right, we need to mm -hmm. understand, um, 
how people work, how people think, you know, how mm. we're able to help them. So, but if we, because we, if we don't understand, we're unable to help them, and mm. we don't change anything, and then these sort of things, you know, inequalities, be like health inequalities, stay the yeah. same. Right. Health inequalities is the biggest kind yeah. of underlying problem, and that is mostly the reason of the strongest rationale as to why we need to study South Asians and other BME populations, because the downside is if we don't provide any support, any treatment or any awareness around it, the outcome is, let's say, more struggle with dealing with type 2 diabetes, more um, chronic heart problems, and that's obviously going to have an impact on the NHS. So you're kind of just thinking logically, well, what is the outcome and what is it that we need to kind of fix and solve as such, so we don't have this outcome. And a large part of it is education in all sense, in, in mental health, in, in health in general, um, that a lot of the BME groups lack and that obviously has a knock-on effect on everything else that comes after that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, um, there's certain things that we're more prone to, you know, like diabetes, yes. for example, and we need to understand, mm -hmm. well, how do we, you know, um, prevent diabetes from, a, you know, reducing the, the prevalence of diabetes in our, in our communities or people that we know, and mm -hmm. not just in South Asia, but I'm sure the wider BME communities, isn't it? Um, if you look at, um, you know, over the, the last couple of decade or let's say century, um, the UK alone has become so multicultural because the population, you know, I think South Asians make up the highest um, non-white um, population now. And across the globe, that's also um, a figure that resembles across the globe. So if you've got a population that's obviously growing, then you obviously need to put support in place and take them into consideration when you do do these kind of health um, awareness and um, when you're giving out advice and doing any sort of, kind of public health kind of approaches. You just want to keep that in mind. Um, yeah. And because South Asians do make up the biggest population, what is it that they suffer from the most? And type 2 diabetes is one of the most prominent ones. We've also got stuff around insulin resistance, um, chronic artery disease, which all you know, cumulatively would have such a burden on the NHS. Mm, and I was thinking the other day, I was speaking to someone and they were saying about, you know, vitamin D deficiencies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there's something around, because our skin is a bit of a, a, a darker a shade, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. the, sun, the sun can't get in. Yeah. Um, so therefore, we're naturally pr prone anyway mm -hmm. uh, to get more um, lack of vitamin D, and it's just yeah. these are, these are just classic examples. I mean, again, you know, these are not this is not new information. This has been around. And I it's think it's not new, and you've got um, you've got a, a ton of research out there that's arguing a lot around. Um, they are considered more vulnerable because if you look at the biological aspects, and this this is more focused on South Asians and Black population their biological make, make them more and um, more likely to any form of coronary artery diseases or any form of insulin problems like diabetes compared to the general population. So if they are such a, considered such a vulnerable, you would expect more kind of support to be put in place to deal with that. But even in 2020, that's still not the case. I think we've still got a lot more to learn and understand about how um, 
how these types of diseases would affect a, a South Asian compared to a non-South Asian person. Yeah, I think, I'm just thinking, that's the reason why we, you know, um, I think I've invested in this area, you know, because it's a mm -hmm. lot of time, a lot of money, you know, yeah. um, you know, and it's all your life that you, because I, I, the reason why I got involved in health psychology is like, okay, well, mm -hmm. how do I want to help people? Where do I spend my time and my money? So I invested yeah. in this to help, help people. You know, I studied, I invested in the masters, I invested in the PhD, I invested in my car, mm -hmm. you know, and so mm -hmm. I put a lot of money in here to basically, because I know the, the outcome that I want is basically able to change the status quo, help people. Um, mm -hmm. And also, um, because when you grew when you grew up around lots of health issues, mm -hmm. it naturally just becomes part of you to basically say, "All right, look, I know all the bad stuff. You no, know? how can we change some of it? I mean, we can't change everything because we're not perfect. Um, but I think yeah. I think all of us can bring something to the table. So I can bring certain things. I might not know everything, but I, I can bring this bit. For example, I can bring the mm -hmm. mental health. Yeah." I think one of the greatest um, aspects and what, why I love health psychology is because it's a biopsychosocial approach and especially with the BME population, the social aspect is such a dominating kind of aspect all in itself and let's just say um, social gatherings are almost kind of key or central to a lot of, you know, yeah, yeah. South Asian daily life or any practices that they do or even for the black population too. And uh, it's, you, I was going to have to consider it. I was going to and say, I think you're right at that point. You know, social gathering is there for our well-being. Right? We do it yes. to keep our morale up. So we're not, yeah. we're, and, and I don't think we're going to, I know we're social distancing at the moment, but mm -hmm. we're, we're not going to negotiate in that sense. Cause, because It's it, all we've known, it's all I've known. Um, yeah. and, and the approach shouldn't be that we should take that away from them because that's not, I don't believe that's, going to kind of fix anything i think we have to go down the tailoring approach so go based on if they're always together the approach to a lot of interventions are normally doing kind of group work like community groups um because they're they're like being together so if you've got them all at the same place you can kind of roll out an intervention and it would more likely be um effective compared to doing it on a one-to-one -one basis because at least with the any social support and um, interventions of so they kind of feed off each other, the bounce off each other, the energy, the motivation uh, to want to make a change. Um, and that's a known fact across many um, areas that do deal with interventions. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of um, like how, in terms of like when you're trying to negotiate change, because um, mm -hmm. you know, I spoke to a couple of public health directors this morning yeah. And um, they asked me what's happening in the, you know, Ramadan, for example, right? Yeah. I said, you, I said, I, I said to Margo, you know, you have to put some messages out around, we're going to have a big celebration at the weekend, but you've got to reinforce the message of like, socially distance. Most people, yes. most people will comply, okay? But there's going to be a group of people which don't. And, and, and that's the same for, irregardless of, of colour or population, that's, it's, human behavior <laughs> minority yeah but majority. you're absolutely but the, the, the point is um that they 
they're not they're not even thinking about it it's not even on their minds mm-hmm. you, for me and you yes because mm-hmm. it's in, embedded but mm-hmm. for our colleagues right it's not even on their minds to even think about oh they might be gathering next week mm-hmm. you know and this is a significant event so therefore if it was basically if it was something like um you know easter christmas bank holiday something like that the message would be there mm-hmm. because it knows but even with this thing it's always I like think it might be certain areas i mean I, I agree with you on that one um but i think certain areas such as maybe london where there is a higher proportion of yeah. let's say south asians and muslims um i do i do believe that they will they will be aware of it and they'll probably be patrolling their areas to reinforce that but i don't think that's the same case for across the whole of the, of the country. I think it's more on certain areas that are known to have a, a higher kind of um, group of so South Asians kind of grouped together. I mean, I mean, I haven't heard, I haven't seen anything. <laughs> and, and, I, and I live in the South Asian area. And um, so public health England I haven't given it. Fa- from speaking to family members, there have been um, patrols, oh, sorry, police kind of patrolling um, certain mosques and stuff on a Friday, let's just say. Um, so they're probably... Oh no, um, I think what, I, I, think what, I, what yeah. I meant was on um, this Eid happening mm-hmm. on, in a few days. Yeah. The guidance seems to come out now, you know, um, yeah. and not, not reactive, not like, we're always at the back of the queue, you know, we're always stuck turning up. We said we should be thinking yeah. ahead and say, okay, look, we need to, because a lot of people are going to be anxious, because I think what it is, it's one of the biggest issues around when you're trying to communicate to different groups. You need yeah. to speak to the gatekeepers. gatekeepers yeah. And if you leave them out, then people will just not buy in, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. And then this is what I mean about health psychology. You know, health psychology can, can bring a lot of answers. It can be very yeah. proactive. It can preempt things. It knows, you know, like social learning theory is a lot in our, yeah. in our work. Yeah. Um, and even message frameworking, you know, because mm-hmm. we have to get out of this. Um, it's very much, it's, and it's in the South Asians as well. We have to get out. We have, we have to get out of this reactive. You know, we'll worry about mm-hmm. when there's a problem. We'll put the message out when there's a problem. We'll, you know, that's not what health psychology is. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with you on that. And I think if you look at certain aspects of any research around eating behavior. I remember I came across a study and um, let's say because a, a lot of Muslims suffer from diabetes during Ramadan, um, they're actually scared to, um, what they would normally do is um, advise the, the person to seek any form of medical advice or doctor advice before Ramadan. So because every case is different, everybody's diabetes is different, some can fast, some can't. But it's better just to speak to your doctors. Um, and a lot of them are actually scared to speak to healthcare professionals because they believe they've got a negative view on Ramadan in, in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, is the case. That just goes back to the health belief model and mm-hmm. such. Um, so, and, and what health psychology can do is come in and again, work with them, raise awareness, give them a bit of education around it, try and break that barrier of they must have a negative view, so I'm not going to go for medical advice. And again, that's not majority, that's just a minority of people who do that. And the downside of that is if you don't, if you avoid any form of medical advice, and especially if you're diabetic, that could be quite fatal if you don't um, follow the guidance on that. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think, you know, and, you know, Ramadan is not something that's going to go away. 
No, it's not going to go away. <laughs> and one of the positive things was um, Diabetes yeah. UK, which is probably one of the bigger organisations. They're very good. They've actually provided a lot of support and guidance around mm. how to safely fast during Ramadan. And they've actually encouraged um, community leaders um, to familiarise themselves with that information. Because as you said, they are gatekeepers and they can also help spread um, kind of the safer kind of guidance around fasting which is good because we need more of that that's the way we should be disseminating um health information yeah and you know we got i think that's what it is i think this implementation gap right because can you see i mean i've, I've seen a lot of good resources right yeah um out there and um, mm-hmm. diabetes uk is one of them yeah but when it's you're one of the key ones that i found yeah and when, but when you when you walk through a basically an area where there's um of south asian diets mm-hmm. um there's a big gap between implementation and being yeah. implying it there's, there's nowhere to be seen in that sense i think yeah. i think in the community where i live for example i'm mm-hmm. i'm probably on a handful of two or three mm-hmm. in a population of 100 80 to ninety thousand people that talk about it mm-hmm. right that's yeah. how that's how i'm, I'm not even one percent <laughs> yeah you know i'm, I'm two or three people me, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of others talk about like this um, guidance, you know, around safe fasting. There's still a big gap around Massive. understanding. I don't yeah. think one thing is the the, of the biological changes and possibly um, psychological changes mm. when eating behavior generally across the year and then during Ramadan as well. They're not actually uh, yeah. aware of what's going on. And, and I think it's important that they do. Um, understand what is going on because it's really important for what happens for after Ramadan because there's been research around how um, I think Yeah. Um, so basically, I lost you at the point of um, uh, what I lost you. What, what did you say? You said there's a lot of research around, and that's when it stops. So you can start from there. Oh, so um, around um, biological modifications. So when you're actually fasting for the 30 days, they found obviously because as a result of the modifying of the meal frequency and eating patterns, it actually alters what we would say um, like metabolic and circadian rhythms. And that's actually still altered even a month after. So there's a lot of strong research coming out mm. around that. But eating behaviours, interestingly, are not altered as we might think, because 29 days um, to alter eating behaviours is not long enough to do that. We believe we might have took on new habits and, and new ways, new ways of eating. But in an actual amount, you need to be fasting for a good couple of months for that to be the case. I mean, there's, you can argue for or against, but that's my understanding of it. Uh, no, I, you know, that's really, really useful. I think there's, <coughs> there's elements of like, um, you're right, yeah? Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's not a problem. I had to, um, I can't basically not acknowledge that in that sense, because it's quite rude. <laughs> <in that sense. laughs> yeah. okay. um, I'm just dying. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, because I know that your what's the word, like myself, is fasting, isn't it? So, yeah. um, you know, this is already a challenge. And I've always wondered, you know, when I was sitting there as a young kid, you know, thinking mm-hmm. like, I wonder how when we fast and stuff, 
you know, because my, my mm. peers, they find it quite fascinating that we can do it for such a long time without any water, you know. And I think there's a lot of conversation to be had about our resilience and behaviour change and intermittent, was it intermittent fasting, what it does yeah, for us? intermediate fasting. Um, a large part of that is habit. Mm-hmm. Anything, when you've done it since you were from a, from a very young age, I, I know I did it from a young age, it, it's all you've ever known, it's what you're used to, and people yeah. have been fasting for centuries, so it's not that, you can't really argue that it's bad for your health, it's not, because for centuries and centuries people are fasting from, I don't know, 10 to 17 to a couple more hours um, across yeah. the globe, and you've got today in 2024, Forums are, are expected to be fasting or have been fasting, and they're all more or less alive in in sense that it's not actually bad for your health. But what's interesting is it, it is essentially just twenty nine days essentially that your body's is out of its daily routine, and after Ramadan, I say maybe two months after everything starts to settle back down. And then for the rest of the year, you can go back to your normal habits and then Ramadan comes back around again. I think that might be an interesting podcast to do, I reckon. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a follow-up. I think that would be an interesting question because I've always been interested in <coughs> the effects of Ramadan, the effects of... Um... There's been a lot of... Um, there hasn't been enough research, in my opinion, um, to make a concrete kind of conclusion like this is exactly what happens because you need to think about, okay, so which kind of which population are you going to focus on research-wise because across the globe I think the impact Ramadan will have sorry fasting will have on your body will depend on where you are in the world geographical location climate social cultural economic conditions because some people gain weight some people lose weight and that's how you know that you have to do more of a controlled study in order to see the real effects of it there have been some but it doesn't account for the 400 million across the globe, what effect it has on them as a whole. So you probably didn't realise that, uh, you know, we're coming on to the discussion around, around food. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, I think that's one thing that uh, I've always been interested in anyway. Like I said, mm-hmm. um, even from a sort of like a fasting sort of mm-hmm. angle to say, I wonder what the literature is. And, you know, I used to be around a lot of, South Asian students when I was doing yeah. masters, yeah. and Ramadan used to come up, and no one was, no one really used to talk about it. We used to just get on with it. We never used to talk about the psychology behind it. Basically, we used to talk yeah. about the religious yeah. benefits and all like that, but we never taught. I've always been interested in. Wow, well, I wonder what happens to our people because it's a behavior change, right? I like that you say my people as well. Yeah, so I'm that's sure you. That's a term I always use, and people people tend to laugh. When they that's hear. it. Yes. And so you can relate, isn't it? So it's like a behavior yeah. change for 28 days. Okay. Yeah. Um, God has asked us to change our, you know, sort of like, yeah. um, you know, our current habits for mm-hmm. a period of these days, set, yeah. on, the, set on the moon, goes mm-hmm. back centuries, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's after effects and then mm-hmm. behavior sets back in after a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there'd be a point to do a deeper podcast around this topic later on. But, yeah, for, sure. the, yeah. but for the point of this, how, you know, um, how has it been for you, the fasting element and food and, you know, just in general? Because um, you said you've done it for such a long time, like me, I've done it since I was a kid. 
obviously it gets longer over in, as each year goes, I think by more an hour. Mm. So um, it gets longer and longer and that doesn't help. Um, and then when I was little, the hours were much, much more short. I think I would come back from school and break my fast, which and I love those days. <laughs> uh, but at the moment we're on the longer hours. Um, yeah, because last, uh, last two years were the longest, wasn't it? Last two, three years. They, they, yeah, because yeah, it went after nine o'clock. Yeah, it's ridiculous, um, crazy, you know. Ridiculous hours, and now it's going round to just before nine thirty, uh, depending on where you are in the UK. Oh um, yeah, well, so what was the time for you? Because we're breaking around nine o'clock now. Are you still half nine? Oh my god! <laughs> no, no, maybe in Scotland you are. Um, we are uh, yesterday. I think it was fourteen minutes past nine. Oh wow! So I'm breaking it around eight fifty six. Oh, wow, so, so we are starving for an extra 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> no, not 20 minutes. That's a lot, you know. It's all you staring at your food. Yes. And the and so the wind, yeah, absolutely. I didn't think about that actually because you're obviously you're from, remember when we say you're from Teesside, so you're, yeah. you're, and, and I'm from northeast of England for those that don't know it. Yes, you know, Google, yeah, Google it, use the map next to next to Middlesbrough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's the way that's how I see it, but uh. Well, Teesside encompasses Middlesbrough as the way I see it. Um, and, and yeah, I never thought about that actually. You guys will be breaking it a lot more longer than us. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, that's the same case across the whole globe. And, you know, for people in places like, I don't know, Iceland and countries more north, God bless them because they are mm. yeah, much, yeah, yeah. much more longer hours. Much more longer. It's extreme down there. So, like, do you think there's basically, um, I mean, I might do like a um, a podcast on it, the health benefits yes. of Ramadan, you know, yeah. um, maybe that would be our next podcast, health benefits of Ramadan, what to do for the next two months. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned this too, you said something happens, we carry these things for two months, you said, or something? It's more the biological changes. So, okay, so, um, yeah. so explain a bit more. It was kind of um, the, the research that I came across around metabolic appetite um, are, are what considered to be altered and circadian rhythms as well. Um, and that has a last, they say that it has a lasting effect a month after. So they're biological ones. Um, the non-biological ones, let's say psychological aspect where we think we've took on new eating behaviours, but we actually haven't. They that's more of a, an area to debate because there isn't strong enough evidence to suggest that's always the case. I think I also think 29 days isn't long enough to alter an eating behaviour. Oh really? You think it's longer? It's, I think it's a little bit longer than that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, you're yeah. obviously a lot, a lot more weaker, you're a lot more tired and I'm not going to say you're hallucinating but you're definitely in a different mindset compared to when you're not fasting so you're obviously going to think more extreme versions of a normal eating behavior that's outside of Ramadan. So it's interesting because I'm obviously interested in eating behaviors. That's what my PhD is based on, but not Ramadan, just in general um, eating um, South Asian behavior. Um, and, and what would be interesting is to actually monitor them before, during and after Ramadan and, and see what are the changes of eating behavior because it, another factor is um, what generation and what age population you are so the younger generations will probably you'll see the most change in eating behavioral habits compared to the older generations who don't tend to alter much but biological I think is across the 
across all population, uh, sorry, age populations. And, and, you know, and I think this is going to be a fantastic sort of um, discussion for our next podcast. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so to our listeners, stay tuned. Um, mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm, you know, um, is there any sort of final thing you'd like to add? I mean, before, before I basically I finish uh, the podcast with people, I ask people to share something and then I, I, I stop I, and then I press stop recording basically. So you have the last word. So something that people want to take away, maybe around Ramadan or... Um, Anything that comes only, to mind. We've only just been what, a couple of days away before it actually ends. Maybe use this time to reflect and think. Are there any changes you would like to maybe take on around eating behaviour? Has it given you a bit of thought around meal frequency, um, the portion sizes and the content of what you're eating? Um, and maybe because a lot of the people are eating in kind of, as, a, as a family, as a unit. Um, just to be more aware of your current eating behavior and is there anything that you can or would like to change and just remember there's a lot of advice and support out there um, if you do want to adopt more of a healthy approach it doesn't have to be anything extreme just the most lightest little changes go a long way as well um, but just know that there is so much social media these days um, so if you did want to make that change it's there if, if anybody wants to other than that have a nice Ramadan Available on all podcast platforms. This is the Psychology Cast, the podcast that interviews unique individuals on why they do what they do.